Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday, the actuality news show, offering unique insights and in-depth analysis, featuring South Africa's top business leaders, newsmakers, and analysts for today's professionals. Your host, Jeremy Max. Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Maggs with a brisk 30 minutes on the latest in South African and global news. We're live and then up as a podcast. We'll bring you insightful interviews with key business and political figures, prominent newsmakers and leading experts, all packed into a concise, informative update. It's Wednesday, the 24th of January. Coming up, it seems South Africa is winning the avian flu battle. How tech is changing the insurance landscape. Can risk-informed urban planning mitigate disastrous flooding? Is Donald Trump's challenge for the U.S. presidency getting stronger? And how to fill the artisan job shortage in South Africa? You'll recall that late last year, South Africa was hit by a devastating avian flu outbreak, which outbreak which almost broke the back of the poultry industry. But strides are now being made in this 60 billion rand a year sector. Isaac Breitenbach is the chief executive officer of the South African Poultry Association, and he's up first on MoneyWeb at midday. And firstly, how has this influenza outbreak affected the overall productivity and financial health of the sector? It had a devastating effect. If we look at uh, the companies, big and small, they were all um, affected by the disease. We culled in the region of 9.5 million birds. And we didn't only lose the birds that we culled, but we also lost the next year's uh, worth of production from these birds. So it had a, a huge impact on the industry. What's the position right now? It has actually improved. We had our last outbreak towards the end of November and subsequent to that, uh, no further outbreaks. Um, but we, we we still have the wild bird population positive for H5 avian influenza strain. And therefore, we're still at risk. And uh, we will have to wait for another two weeks to see um, if we have killed off the disease. All right. Now, there are specific issues or disagreements over protocols that have led to the Department of Health not approving application for vaccination. Can you simplify that for me? Yes, I can. If we actually talk about vaccination um, at present, we actually have three different H5 vaccines available that companies can immediately use to vaccinate. Now, the strain that caused the trouble was the H7 strain, and we have imported a vaccine. That vaccine was not approved for uh, usage, and reason being that it wasn't effective against the, the, the H7 strain we have in South Africa. So what we've done is we've actually developed a, a vaccine locally up until the end of November, We tested that vaccine during December and the dossier for approval was submitted to Act 36. So we expect an outcome by the end of February and that will put us in a position to vaccinate. Are you confident you you will get that permission though? 
We think so, yes. Yeah, with the process that the vaccine followed, um, we believe that we will get approval for that. The other issue that we need to deal with is that for this controlled disease, we actually need to comply with very stringent biosecurity protocols. And those protocols we negotiate with the Department of Agriculture. That was published, the ones that we've agreed was published at the end of November. We asked Delrod to approve and publish these regulations to put us in a position to to vaccinate. So I think that we will see a flurry of applications to vaccinate by the end of February. But you are concerned that there's been a little bit of dragging of feet here, aren't you? It's slower than what we would have liked it to be. I think that's the one issue that I need to mention. The second one is that if we look at what was published at the end of November, those protocols, uh, most of the broiler breeder birds will be able to comply with those. So um, if the broiler breeder companies um, apply, the uh, the 7,8 million birds will uh, qualify to be vaccinated. Um, what we haven't agreed is for the uh, commercial layer birds to comply with these uh, stringent requirements. They're not in a, a very good position in terms of biosecurity like what we have with broiler breeders. And as it stands, we will be able to vaccinate 7,8 million broiler breeders, but we will still have 27 million commercial layers not vaccinated. And for vaccines to work, we need to actually vaccinate the population. You also need to produce the vaccination surely at a faster rate. Uh, Correct. In terms of the availability of vaccine, that is not problematic at all. We will have enough vaccine available for the country. And what we also need to do is obviously vaccinate the 8,7 million birds. And that will mean that a day old, we actually will use a needle and um, and vaccinate the day old chicks. But that's common for us. We do that for other vaccines as well. So I don't foresee a logistical problem in, in getting the birds vaccinated. How is all of this affecting price of product going forward? In terms of meat, there was no impact on price whatsoever. Um, If I look at the slaughter numbers for last year, we slaughtered about 21.5 million birds per week. That is totally normal. And the reason being that we imported 150 million hatching eggs to replace the hatching eggs that we've lost due to the disease. So we haven't seen a a meat shortage at all last year and a very marginal 5.4% increase in price, which is normal for the period September to December. And then in January this year, we saw a reduction in the price of chicken meat. The commercial layer eggs, uh, table eggs, completely different to what's happening with meat. We've had a shortage last year. That shortage is still with us and probably will be with us for the next six months. How serious is that shortage? It's a material shortage. Uh, We've lost 20% of all the commercial layer flocks that, that we used to have on the ground. Obviously, as we get the disease, the farmers immediately start to replace these birds. So there are birds um, coming into production that are replacements for the disease. But that will still take another six months to replace all of the birds that we've lost. Isaac Breitenbach, thank you very much indeed. Chief Executive Officer at the SA Poultry Association. MoneyWeb at Midday for all your up-to-date stories. 
Now, the devastation caused by the recent floods in KwaZulu-Natal again demonstrates that the country is not moving fast enough to adopt appropriate urban planning. That view from Professor Hope Magidi Misha Chipungu from the University of KwaZulu-Natal, who joins me on the program now. And Professor, first of all, and maybe this is a useful starting point, how has the history of urban development contributed to the current vulnerability to flooding, particularly in KZN? The point I'm trying to make is that the flooding in South Africa, even other parts of Africa, it's going to be a continuous story. Like it's going to be a common coherence. Like it's going to happen often. Mm. Now, because it's going to happen often, there are a number of things that we need to look at. One is the issue around the climate change, right? The way in which we are relating with our environment, we continue to make the situation worse. And we're doing very little around that. Then the other issue is that if we are having issues around climate change and all those things, how do we then address that and plan for that? Now, from a time planning perspective or or urban design perspective, there are a number of issues that need to be considered when designing cities. And those issues will depend on where we are experiencing floods and the communities that we, we are planning for. And of course, the resources available. So I'm not sure whether you want me to discuss those measures or, or what. I, I do, Professor. I'd like to know what those specific factors are of concern when it comes to planning. Yeah, so there are a number of factors. So one being the way in which we do what we call development control, right? The land use management. You will realize that in South Africa, to be specific, even in KZN, we have a number of people who are actually building along what we call floodplains, right? And those areas are obviously not designed for residential purposes. Now, what's supposed to be done from a town planning perspective, we're supposed to do development and control and discourage those movements and also those kind of development going on. But that is not happening. Why is not happening? It's not happening because we do not have land, right? We do not have adequate land, strategically located where people will be closer to work and their economic activities. So wherever people find piece of land, they're staying. So we need to work around that. So in other words, in our planning, we shouldn't be only focusing or concentrating our effort in urban environment or metros, but we also need to be investing in what we call Mm. satellite cities so that we spread the pressure. That is one. Then the other issue is around what we call open spaces, green open spaces. The kind of development that we're having nowadays, they are more focused and geared towards cementing almost everything. So we're putting a lot of concrete around our environment, but forgetting that we need to be living open spaces and maintain those open spaces. Now, why open spaces? We need open spaces because they will have to act as what we call carbon sinks. This is where you find that uh, open spaces, they attract, we also, from a town planning perspective, we consider that what we call urban lungs, city lungs. So for city to breathe. So it's able to, it's able to assist us with the regulating carbon emissions and by mm. observing uh, carbon dioxide and regulate our atmosphere. That's another thing. So we need to be living open spaces for that purpose. Then the other issue is around what we call uh, flood basins, right? So in the way in which we design our cities, we're supposed to be living areas where they will act as flood basin or flood ponds, where the water will accumulate deliberately. So it has to be designed, calculate the slope, everything. So make sure that the water accumulates into that particular space. Then it does not go into residential areas or to other areas where people will be affected. And this is not happening. 
Now, and this is a common practice even in other countries. It's not happening and it is an area of concern. Now, the beauty about that is that you're also able to use that water at a later stage if you need be. But also you're able to delay the impact, but not only delay the impact, to minimize the impact on the communities which are affected mm. because you are now channeling the water. Professor, the, the all, whole... all the factors that you've mentioned, I imagine, are predicated on municipalities, particularly like Etiquini, to enforce land use policies, particularly in the context of these flood-prone areas. But my sense is this isn't happening or not happening sufficiently. Of course, it's, it's not. Because if you, you drive around, you're still seeing people staying in, in flood plains. And now when we say it's post-flooding, like I remember in, in my research recently, I was looking at uh, how people are rebuilding their life. And they are rebuilding their life in the place where they were affected. So they are continuing with building the floodplain. And of course, if rains come back, same thing will happen. So the developmental control in terms of land use management is questionable and it needs to be looked into in greater detail. And part of that is something that you call risk-informed urban planning. How do you get that right? So the way in which you get risk-informed urban planning is to acknowledge that you have a risk by assessing the environment as like we know now so we do know what our uh, our risks are then when you are doing what we call urban risk inform is when you then respond to the risk available and design accordingly by putting all those measures that i mentioned earlier on by involving everyone i mean we cannot emphasize enough the importance of waste management mm. right so we cannot have a province which actually struggles to collect uh, our waste management across different communities. And that needs to be looked into. The, the way in which we manage our waste is important. But also communities themselves, uh, individuals at an individual le- level, we also need to be contributing something. You cannot just be driving around through your window and you just throw plastics. Where is that plastic going? That is the question you have to ask yourself. When it rains, everything gets to be washed away and it goes to our drainage systems and they're blocked. So in as much as municipalities need to play their part and they need to make sure that they're collecting all those waste management properly, but also at individual level, we have some responsibilities. But also in the way in which we design our cities, we cannot continue to encourage urban sprawl, right? We need to design compact cities, which allows people to move from one place to another. I am going to leave it there. Regrettably, we are out of time. But thank you for outlining for us a very complex problem. Uh, I appreciate your time. Thank you. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. Overnight, Donald Trump has cruised to victory in the New Hampshire's Republican presidential contest, edging closer to a November rematch with the Democratic president, Joe Biden. Let's give you a quick assessment on this now. More from international relations commentator, Professor John Stremlaw. John, a very warm welcome to you. Even Joe Biden today says it's over and that Trump will be the Republican nominee. Is it all done and dusted? Well, Jeremy, uh, thank you. And and, uh, I think the plastics uh, piece that beforehand was more immediate and and less complex than than (laughs) what's going on in the in the primary system in the United States and its federal federal complexity. But nevertheless, Biden hopes that Trump will be the nominee because it's while it's a high risk strategy, it's the one guy he can beat, I think. But um, that that's way in the future. Right now, we're still trying to figure out what it means when he uh, beat Nikki Haley 
by 34,000 votes in uh, a primary, uh, and she did not run a very coherent campaign, but he did have, have show, show that it, the diehard Republicans who regard him like the cult-like figure uh, are predominant, at least in this little uh, state that has uh, got a population the size of, uh, well, smaller than Soweto. Do we lend too much credence to uh, events like the Iowa caucuses and the New Hampshire primary, given, as you say, the sparseness of voters? I think so. Um, I think so, Jeremy. But it, it's it's part of a federal system which makes, uh, you know, the founders made the states equal, like a re- regional economic community here in, in, in Africa. Uh, and so, you know, Lesotho and, and, and South Africa have the same... A voting weight within within SADC, uh, and and uh, they 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 don't clearly have the same influence, but uh, but the, the 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 small states are given disproportionate power to senators, even though they have a lot less p- people than New York or California, and that's a problem. But here in in, in New Hampshire, uh, what it's what it's really instructive to me was that the independents. Uh, voted overwhelmingly for Nikki Haley, and then uh, they would be likely to vote for Biden if they are never Trumpers. So leading on from that, John, with Biden then leading in the Democratic primary, potentially facing Trump again, what strategies going forward is he likely to deploy? It seems as though he has already fired the election starting gun against Trump. You're very well informed. Yes, he has. And uh, for, for, for someone where ageism is a problem, I mean, he's uh, in his 80s. Uh, nevertheless, he has become sharp in his attack on Trump. And Trump is really vulnerable for uh, the, the, the fact that he's autocratic and he's a racist and he's a misogynist and, and he goes on the list. But uh, he does promise uh, uh, his followers to uh, simple answers, like the demagogue always does, you know. And so uh, it's not over till it's over. And mm-hmm. I forecast uh, right up until the end that uh, Trump would never win in 2016. So I'm humbled by his victory then. But uh, I, I, I think you can bet safely on a Biden re-election. Yeah, you're talking to the guy, John, that said that Brexit would never happen. So we're in the same camp there. Um, (laughs) (laughs) John, Trump's ongoing legal issues, he's facing 91 criminal charges. I also read overnight that there were exit polls suggesting concern among Republican voters about his suitability for office if convicted. Surely the deeper we get into the election season, this is going to become more of an issue. It is. It is. And, and uh, uh, you know, he's already talked about how he's going to pardon himself and everybody else involved in the January 6th uh, insurrection against uh, uh, the, 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 the credible uh, outcome of the last election. And uh, it, it, is, it, is a, it is a perilous uh, uh, road he's traveling uh, right down now. And uh, the, the recent scandal about the prosecutor in, uh, in Georgia doesn't help, uh, muddies the waters a bit. Uh, and that's Fannie Willis. I'm, I'm not going to belabor that right now. But you're, you're, you're in an unprecedented uh, uh, con- confluence of, of, of events in, in the United States that makes uh, uh, democracies, uh, again, uh, 
vulnerable to the autocrat who says, uh, vote for me like uh, Putin does, or Xi Jinping, it, it, it's predictable. And, and uh, look at our election coming up here in South Africa in 2024. It's also a, a real inflection point for the uh, future of the democracy here. So uh, you're, you're, you're at risk in a 235-year democracy, and you're at risk in a 30-year-old democracy. As always, I appreciate the crisp uh, assessment uh, attached to Wits University here in Johannesburg, International Relations Commentator Professor John Stremlow. MoneyWeb at Midday for all your up-to-date stories. Now, I think it's fair to say the career choice often has a stigma attached to it with a relentless pressure to go to university. But obviously, there are other choices, according to Elsie Haramsa, who's the chief executive officer of UXI Artisan Development Group. And she says that more focus is needed on the importance of skilled trade. She joins us now on MoneyWeb at Midday. So, Elsie, fair to say then that we do have a serious shortage of artisans in this country. Okay, the answer is definitely yes, Jeremy. And the reason is government is saying we need 30,000 artisans per year. Why do we need that artisans? Because if you look at any economy in the world, you need artisans to build houses, to build industries, and to work in so many sectors. So it doesn't matter if it's tourism or construction or renewable energy. We need artisans in South Africa to change the whole landscape and the economy of this world. Elsie, why do we have the shortage, do you think? 30,000 is a lot. I think for so many years, they are saying the, the average age of our current artisans is 55 years of age. So now, if you look at the next 10 years, all that skilled people will be out of the system. So if we don't start now building the capacity of our youth to take over the skilled artisans, we will be out of artisans within the next 10 years. The problem, of course, is it's often seen as a a job option that is not particularly attractive. Yeah, well, we can say it looks like it's not attractive. But what we are saying to our youth, if you compare hourly rate of a doctor versus a plumber or electrician, an electrician is earning in South Africa, I'm not even saying overseas, in South Africa, an average rate of an uh, uh, electrician is 900 rand per hour. So although you can say it's not, oh, no, I don't want to pursue artisans, it's a highly paid profession. And best of all, 89% of the learners that complete the artisanship get full-time employment, and 5% is starting their own businesses. So how do you think you can make this career path more attractive? I think because of the workplace. So if you look at our unemployment rate in South Africa, we have got so many unemployed, qualified learners from universities, but they can't get jobs because they don't have experience. If you do an artisanship, you get experience while you are in training. So at the end of the day, you build your CV 
while you're in training and you get placement and employment immediately after you get your qualification. So the attractiveness of an artisanship is you get a job and you can earn money immediately. How difficult then is it to attain that artisanship? Uh, No, not difficult at all. So we've got a footprint throughout South Africa's 13 campuses and you can actually, if you have a grade 11 or a grade 12. So for the youth, currently we are sitting with a lot of learners. They got the grade 12 results and perhaps they didn't pass or perhaps they pass, but they can't enter university. So this is an opportunity actually for them to say they can build a career for themselves and for their family. What would your call to action be to the business community in this respect? We need the business community because an artisan can't qualify if they don't get experience in the industry. So we need our industry to help us with the placement of learners and also for themselves to build their own capacity of skills in their own businesses. Do you think sometimes there is a reluctance to do this, a reluctance to place people with these skills or people that are looking for those skills? I think there is, but because it's a lack of knowledge, the industry is not really understanding the benefit for them as a business to build their own skills, but also to get all the benefits that government is giving them, like tax rebates and incentives, to say that we take on youth and we build our own business and capacity. This is the only way that we can actually take South Africa forward. What happens if the current trajectory continues, that uh, the status quo remains? Uh, You're not optimistic that this pool is going to grow any at all, are you? Well, because we are UXI Artisan Development, we believe that we want to be part of the solution to build our skills. And that is why we are really also investing in building the industry and the knowledge on the business community side to please help and ask them to get all the information so that they can be part of the solution. But we believe this is the solution for South Africa. Elsie, is this still seen as a male-dominated sector? It is, but I can tell you where we are sitting, 40% of our learners is actually female because females have got something else that they can bring to the industry. So it was for the last 10 years, it was, but I can see the change in the industry for the last three to five years. You can see the females is also getting into the trade. Remember, a chef is also a trade. Hairdresser is also a trade. Elsie Haramsa, thank you very much indeed. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. And finally, at a time marked by rapid technological evolution, John Vessels, who is actuarial and data science manager at MyWay Blink, believes the tech has not just altered but is revolutionizing the insurance landscape. But as we navigate this industry, one pivotal question emerges. Where is the insurance sector heading and is human connection now just an afterthought? John, a very warm welcome to you. So first up, uh, tech is making insurance easier, but I would contend it's still a grudge purchase. Thanks, Jeremy. And yes, unfortunately, that's true that as much as we try to make the buying process a lot easier, 
it can still be a grudge purchase. So really what we're trying to do at MyWebLink is to help consumers understand that insurers are really there to help them, to protect their assets and to let them know that we care about their financial well-being as much as they do. Do you think that people value tech more than the actual cost of the product? I think it really depends on what the consumer is looking for. Obviously, an insurance cost is a big issue, but there is a saying that we have that if you get someone on price, you will lose them as price at, on price as well. So at MyWebLink, we very much want to ensure that customers have an excellent insurance experience, that their needs are catered too quickly, that they don't need to waste time doing anything, that there's convenience, and that doing insurance is also rewarding. We also have a cashback offering where it's you earn cashback if you drive less than two and a half thousand kilometers a month. You so make- as much as cost is a big impact, uh, consumers want a lot of other things with their insurance as well. John, obviously you're making a very compelling argument, and I guess it's your job to do that, but I'll come right back at you and say that in spite of the advances of technology, whether it be in insurance or other sectors, there's always room for error. There's room for frustration because people still value that personal contact. Often that is lacking. The challenge, of course, is is to get the balance right. For sure. And our philosophy is very much that the tech should serve the people and not the other way around. We definitely don't want to transform digitally and include technology just for the sake of it. The technology there is to make the buying journey a journey much easier, but at the same time also enable our staff to do what they do best. Instead of having to do the mundane tasks that they may have had to do in the past, what tech allows them to do, it frees them up to really talk to the clients, understand their needs, empathize with them, and give them good advice. So certainly at MyWebLink, we believe that tech serves the people, and it's not just about the technology. Do you think in time, the better we become at technology in the space, it will bring the cost of product down? For sure, and we're already seeing that with digital insurance offerings, because you don't need as many staff to firstly make the sale and then service the policy, costs do come down, and that is a great point. It allows us to save costs for the consumer, but also other things coming in like AI and machine learning, that's also allowed us to do many other things, for example, catching fraudsters that then lets us charge the honest premiums or the honest clients less. I'm glad you raised the issue of artificial intelligence in this space. Uh, As important as it is, and the genie is out of the bottle proverbially, um, it does does still pose significant risk in terms of inaccuracy, in terms of ethics. Uh, The list goes on and on. Yeah, that's a great point as well. And again, when we use this technology, we need to be very intentional to use it for the purpose that it's intended. And a lot of these AI models and machine learning models can work like black boxes. And the danger of that is if you don't know how it works, you don't know exactly what's happening there. And maybe it's discriminating when it shouldn't be discriminating. And there are advanced techniques now to take that out of the models. And as an insurance industry, we need to be responsible. And at MyWebLink, we certainly try to be responsible Mm. with how we use these models in our businesses. And obviously, as far as the consumer is concerned, buyer beware. You've also got to be aware of those risks and you've got to be able to identify the red flags, I guess. Yes, definitely. You want to do your research as well as as an insured, someone in the insurance market. And you want to make sure that your data is being protected and that the company that is getting your data is, is using it in the way they're telling you they're going to use it. And at MyWebLink, we're very serious about that. John Vessels, thank you very much indeed, actuarial and data science manager at the company. And before we go, our new daily online poll is up. 
go to MoneyWeb Money on Twitter X. I'll say that again, MoneyWeb on Twitter X or LinkedIn. And the question pertains to our last interview. How do you perceive the future of the insurance sector? Is it going to be technology-driven, as we've discussed? Is there going to be a, a balance between technology and personalized services or is it always going to be human-centric? That poll is up right now, and we'll have the results on the program tomorrow. MoneyWeb at midday. We are live at noon weekdays. Then we're up as a podcast. As always, goodbye to you, and thank you for listening. Listen to the daily live stream of MoneyWeb at midday or download episodes on moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.